you found the Digging Oak Island podcast, the podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. Dave McBride, thanks so much for downloading and listening. If you've been listening to and enjoying our little podcast, please help us out by leaving a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your shows. Also, I invite you to join us on Twitter and Facebook. You can follow the show at Digging Oak Island. Let's start today's podcast with your emails and questions, as we usually do. The first one comes from Joe. And Joe sent us some very valuable information. And before I read this, let me thank the others who uh, also helped with this subject. Uh, I got more than one email on this from a bunch of people. Um, This one kind of did the best job, at least, of explaining it to this simple podcaster. And I know I have some more information on the way from another listener. Uh, Anyway, Joe writes, hi, Dave, longtime listener, love the podcast, came across this article that discusses the carbon dating of trees. It confirms that other listeners point that wood taken from the core of a tree will date earlier, sometimes much earlier than wood from the outer part of a tree. And as most probably mostly know, um, I'm adding this myself. Anyway, let me finish up here. He sends this thing. He says, honestly, I honestly never thought about that before. It's one of the reasons I love your show. Thanks. Keep it up, Joe. Um, And then here's the piece from the article, quote, one of the main assumptions of radiocarbon dating is that the organism's time of death is also the time it ceased carbon exchange with the biosphere. If this is not the case, such as in wood, the radiocarbon age of that organism at death is not zero. When radiocarbon dating a piece of wood or charcoal, the event dated is the growth of the tree ring. Trees grow by the addition of rings. And these rings stop exchanging carbon with the biosphere once they are laid down. Thus, the radiocarbon age of a single tree's heartwood and sapwood will not be the same with the innermost heartwood being significantly older than the sapwood. Anyway, thank you so much, Joe, for that. Um, We need to keep this in mind. We talk about this a lot on the show. Um, And as most of you know, the first thing that happens when a log is milled into um, lumber is uh, the outer layers are generally taken off. Certainly the bark is, and then it's shaped by getting down to the middle of it. Um, That's generally how that works. So you can see how it makes a big difference. Basically what we need to remember is C14 dating is great fun to talk about, (laughs) but as opposed to dendrochronology, it's just not super accurate and it's not accurate enough to get crazy about, right? Listen, If a piece of wood that they find dates to the 15th century using C14 testing, then I think we can safely assume that no matter what this comes into, it probably predates searcher activity, right? But if it says something like early 1700s, um, you know, has a date range that goes deep into the 1700s, you know, then that can certainly be close enough where we might see how it could end up part of a searcher's you know, toolbox and a part of something that they used. And at least it casts some doubt in my mind. And that's always what we're looking for, right? Does that make sense? Joe, thank you so much. I know that our friend who's going to be next here, Jock, is also working on some information on this to help me understand this better. Um, And uh, so we we have certainly not talked about this for the last time. And I know it's going to mean a lot as we kind of review the season. Anyway, so let's go to Jock. He writes for, uh, this is regarding last week's episode. Um, Dave, so glad to hear that you and your family got over your COVID attack. 
That would have been tough with your little ones. Uh, you must be in line for a vaccine soon. Jock, thank you very much. Um, yeah, it was difficult. Uh, both my wife and I and my son all had COVID. Um, I probably had it the worst. My son only had it for a matter of a few hours, it feels like, as far as symptoms go. But he was really pretty good. Uh, it was tough. It was tough going for a couple of days. Um, when I recorded the last podcast, I was actually just really starting to go downhill, you know. And then the next the one or two days after that, I was kind of back up and running. Um, and the funny thing about it is, Chuck, I got the email saying, come schedule your vaccine appointment that day. The day I got the positive test. Unbelievable. Anyway, again, he continues. Again, your podcast is perfect uh, supplement to the show. I'm actually more excited to hear your comments because the show frustrates me a bit. You bring in some reality to get to the truth. So then Jock fires off a bunch of comments. But before we get to that, Jock, you know, you're not alone. Uh, and I think we've said this many, many times. It's part it, some of it has to do with this season and what this season has been about. And um how things seem to have changed a little bit. So anyway, anyway, Jock fires off these questions, and we'll try to answer them as we need to here. Number one, Bravo Tango. Remember what that was, right? Not sure what the code means. Big BT, big treasure. Uh, so, Jock, our friend Jesse told me that Tango means target. So maybe it's something like that. And we know what we're talking about, right? Uh, they called Marty on their way over to look at this piece of wood found in the swamp, and Marty said, did you find Bravo Tango? You know, I mean, it could mean something important, but uh, I kind of think it may just be two brothers being goofy. I mean, listen, my brother says ridiculous crap to me all the time, so it certainly makes all the sense in the world. Anyway, Jock's next question, too. Rick with the cell phone in hand while driving. That is distracted driving in Canada. At least he's not drinking a beer. Well, that's true. He isn't drinking a beer. But, Jock, isn't he driving on a private road on his own property? Um and on a secluded island to boot? I mean, other than maybe a tree or a seagull, I can't imagine there's much for him to hit here. Uh, anyway, number three, he writes, The seismic anomaly. Note, we have not heard anything about this survey for quite a while. The survey was done in 2018, and if I remember correctly, it was fine-tuned to somehow visualize shallower anomalies. Imagine the cost. I'm not sure if they got any positive hits off the survey looking for tunnels. A typical seismic survey used for oil exploration calibrates its equipment to investigate the Earth at deeper levels, 2,000 feet or more. Not a couple hundred feet that would be needed for this swamp. Perhaps any geophysicists out there may want to correct me and even explain if the shallow survey would work. If so, how it would work. It's very interesting that Robert Clotworthy calls this, and he's referring to the anomaly in the, the swamp, a galleon ship. Note the writer, with the producer's approval, wrote that spin. I once scrolled through the credits at the end. The list goes on, but at the very end, Marty, Rick, and Craig, and the full cast of characters are listed as executive and associate producers, too. So your comments of Mr. Clotworthy not being the spin artist are correct. He is the reader. But if, I was a pro if I was a producer and I did not like the wording, I would protest and reword or take my name off the credits. Jock, um, thank you for that bit there. You're not wrong. Uh, um, perhaps the guys do have the ability to insist on corrections if they're even brought into the process, but I don't know that. Um, the one that drives me nuts is Samuel Ball being one of the quote-unquote richest man in Nova Scotia. They say that all the time. It absolutely drives me insane. Uh, I can't imagine it doesn't also drive Laird Niven a little crazy um, because he's the one who's really focusing on Mr. Ball and his life and times. Um, and, you know, maybe we haven't got to the bottom yet of what... 
uh, Mr. Ball's wealth is. But uh, what we do know is <laughs> during that time, he was not recognized as one of the richest men in all of Nova Scotia. So they say things like that. And yeah, you would you would you would hope that somebody would kind of stop them from doing it. But and I think in the past it has been done just by the the writer and the narrator um, and not so much with the guys in the uh, cast, but uh, that seems to be changing a little bit. Anyway, um, anyway, he continues. Getting back to the anomaly, first of all, they identified it three years ago. I would have had a side-scan sonar run over it since it specializes in shallow investigation. The depth where that obstruction is was only eight feet. I would have put Gary out on a swamp with pontoons or wellies in, in his monster tunnel-finding metal detector. Surely if that ship is out there, there might be nuts and bolts holding it together. If they also thought it was a ship for the last three years, run a drill rig over the location in the winter when the swamp is frozen and drill. They do that in northern Canada and the Muskeg for hydrocarbon exploration. And Why not excavate in the winter when frozen or partially frozen? They dig basements in Canada during the frozen winter. Or why not a hand-boring device like they use in dendrochronology, standing on a piece of plywood? If, you, if your boring device hits wood at a depth of and brings up wood, bingo. If not, if it's rock, then you, <laughs> bongo, he says. <laughs> or just a, a long metal rod to sound out the depth and shape. See if it matches the seismic. I'm all oh, that makes sense. But again, I say this to you all the time, guys. How do you know they haven't done these things? And we just haven't seen the results. It's kind of where I stand on all that all the time. Funny how a carpenter's square turns into a mason's tool. This is his fourth question. Uh, then you get the Marty surprised head turn. Those guys are going to be careful not to get whiplash if they discover something really big. My wife says that all the time, Jock. But a bricklayer tool doesn't have the same ring to it. You know they would go to the temp. You knew they would go to the Templar slant. Why does a T square, as Marty explains, have to be Masonic connections? I have a number of T squares in my toolkit, and I am not a Mason. So do I, Jock, and I'm also not a Mason. At the very end, recap Clotworthy calls it a Masonic T square from the Mason's T square, as Doug had called it. That is lying. Essentially, it is. It's uh, Anyway, uh, shame on the producers. And why would Marty say, quote, I don't know why that was in the swamp? He made a big deal out of it. Did they not find a little stone structure next to the road? That could have been a tool used to build a wooden structure as well. Probably did not have metal ones back in the 1600s. No, I'm sure they didn't. Anyways, next, his next comment. Why did Gary not use his tunnel-finding metal detector on the Samuel Ball floor? He had it in his hand when Laird handed Gary the hinge. You knew darn well Gary would say it was a chest or a box. Yes, of course. And it did. I got to admit, Jock, it did look like a chest or a box. And I'm pretty sure Gary actually used that metal detector uh, tunnel surveying thing. Um, why would he have it there if he wasn't to use it for just that purpose? We just didn't see it. Six, Mr. Stevenson and his Masonic symbols. This is the crackpot session from last week, if you remember. Podcast had some great comments about it. Again, these guys take that cross and use it to position a new drill hole. You know my opinion on the cross. I believe it's a bunch of random boulders deposited by the retreating and melting glacier. I was looking at the clouds in my area last week and I saw a sideshow Bob. <laughs> <laughs> from the Simpsons, I assume. Uh, uh, anyway, he continues, remember the astrophysicists used the stars to align the cross and then the GPS lady who had them drill a bunch of holes based on that cross. Uh, absolutely correct. Um, nobody knows what this cross is or why it's there. And we just, we keep, they keep using it as a guide and it seems to never pan out. 
Anyway, seven. When David Frenetti shows the burnt rod to Aaron, um, David's hands are completely black. Aaron's hands are just a little as he handles it. David's hands were staged. They rubbed them for effect. Sorry for throwing so much. That was just one show. Cheers, Jock. Um, Jock, that last one about the staging, I'm just not going to touch. Uh, other than to say I've spoken to many folks who have taken part in the filming of the show. And even off air, in private, um, they are convinced and they convince me that nothing here is staged and nothing is fake. Nothing that they have ever seen or thought of. Um, I choose to believe them rather than make speculative accusations, but I value your opinion. I know many people agree with you, um, not only with that last point you made there, but also with everything else you wrote, all the other criticisms you wrote. Jock, I think it's time for me to give you a homework assignment, as well as the other people who have participated so much with your emails and your messages for this season. I'd like you guys to all start thinking about your thoughts uh, as the season comes to an end. And then maybe an episode or two after, a podcast or two after the season is over, we should dedicate sort of a listener review, what you guys think of what was found, um, you know, the criticisms you have, the things you liked, um, you know, what we thought as a group about this past season, because it was a controversial season. There's no way to get around that. Um, and let's just do one dedicated to what you guys, what your thoughts are. Jock, you're the best. Thank you again. Uh, let's go now to Sheila, who writes, hi, I just started listening to your podcast and thought I would share something about one of the theories. Since I have only gotten a few episodes in, I apologize if you already received this info. I watched PBS, and there was a great documentary about Elizabeth Smith Friedman, a codebreaker, and she sends me a link to the article, or to an article about her. It mentions about her working years to crack the cipher about Sir, Fan Sir Francis Bacon writing Shakespeare to no avail. She was a master codebreaker and a cryptoanalyst, and after seeing the show, I feel I can cross this theory off the Oak Island list. That does not mean Sir Bacon did not bury something else there. <laughs> Here is the part of the text that it mentions. Uh, quote, born into a Quaker family in Huntington, Indiana in 1892, Friedman studied poetry and literature before settling down in Chicago after graduation. A devoted Shakespeare fan, she visited the city's Newberry Library to see the 1623 original edition of the playwright's first folios. Um, and that was from the article written by Carrie Hagen for Smithsonian Magazine in 2015. There, a librarian impressed by Friedman's interest put her in touch with George Fabian, an eccentric millionaire seeking researchers to work on Shakespeare's code-cracking project, which was very popular at that time. She moved to Fabian's estate at Riverbank Laboratory in Geneva, Illinois, and met her future husband, William Friedman. The pair worked together to attempt to prove Fabian Hunch that Sir, Fran Sir Francis Bacon had written Shakespeare's plays, filling the text with cryptic clues to his identity. Years later, the couple concluded that his hunch was incorrect. Thank you for such an in-depth podcast, Sheila. Uh, Sheila, you are welcome, uh, and welcome to the Diggin' Oak Island family. Uh, great subject. Uh, I think I agree completely with you here, uh, and I think I've said that before. Um, I feel the there is a possibility that Sir Francis Bacon and his followers might be somehow involved in all of this. Uh, let me put it this way. I would rank that theory higher than the Templars. But uh, having said all that, I mean, the theory that Bacon is somehow involved with what is on um, Oak Island, you know, uh, I do not think from all I've read that Francis Bacon wrote everything we now know as authored by William Shakespeare. 
Um, Oak Island fans were introduced to the man in the story of Peter Amundsen, a Norwegian organist who believes he has found clues hidden in Shakespeare's first folio that prove this very old theory that Bacon wrote all of Shakespeare's works. And then he believes they were buried, or the original manuscripts were buried on Oak Island. I have no idea. Here's the thing where I always stop. I don't know why they would do that. <laughs> anyway, uh, Sheila, um, if you haven't seen it yet and you want to drive yourself crazy, take a look at the 2017 documentary film Cracking the Shakespeare Code. Uh, you even get some very old school Oak Island footage on that there on that film as well. Um, but I totally, totally agree with you on all this. Thank you, Sheila. Great email. Keep them coming. Let's go now to Jesse who sends me these great emails during the airing of the show that always make me laugh, which I will not read here, and you know why, Jesse. Uh, anyway, he, he did have a serious one. He writes this one. Uh, uh, he writes, well, me being the skeptic that I am, the door they found on the Ball Foundation uh, is probably not a door to a treasure, but a door that fell down on the floor of a rotting home. I'm worried that the History Channel is, is wanting to put too much hope in this door on the floor, I think the house started rotting and fell in on itself, Jesse. Uh, Jesse, here, here's another thing with regards to this scene from last week. If I'm not mistaken, like we said before, Gary Drayton was on the scene with his big detector, and uh, that can detect voids as well as metal, and uh, we didn't see anything about it. And then today, we hear nothing about it either uh, in this last episode. Um, like I said, we know Gary owns this thing. He was there on the scene. We can only assume he used it um, to see if there was some sort of subseller or something here some sort of void um and so my guess is that's exactly what they did and they didn't find anything i haven't gotten confirmation of that but that's kind of how i feel also you're not going to get confirmation of that because um you know anybody involved is has a non-disclosure agreement and they can't say that until after the season's over so we'll talk about this more when the season's over Okay, let's go now to Daniel, who writes, I'm a little bit confused about what is going on in the swamp, and I'm hoping you can clear it up for me. The ship anomaly, ship-shaped anomaly in the swamp, I thought this had been proven to be nothing. If I recall, it was a layer of sand that showed up due to its different density. I know you have mentioned some frustration that they mention the anomaly from time to time as though it hasn't been disproven. Now they have found some wood in the swamp, which they are suggesting is a ship, there have been some reference to the ship-shaped anomaly as they uncover pieces, but as I recall, the anomaly was in the center of the swamp. It appears that the recent possible ship pieces they are digging is on the east side of the swamp. So what is the story? Has the SS Matty Blake set sail again? And is this it or something different? Thanks. I really love your podcast. Daniel, thank you so much. Um, you've touched on a sore spot with me. I think you know that. Um, the SS Matty Blake, that's what I call the uh, ship-shaped anomaly found a few years ago using seismic scanning, was positioned, if you remember, um, how do I explain this? Uh, if you're looking at the swamp sort of vertically, right? If you're looking from above at the swamp, from south to north, uh, it runs roughly from sort of the southwest area of the swamp up to the northeast. Uh, now, these pieces of wood uh, found a couple of weeks ago were found very far down on the southern tip of the swamp, way down by the road. Um, they don't really show conveniently um, whether or not or where these pieces of wood were found in relation to this ship shape anomaly. They could easily do that, right? I mean, Steve Guptill can get out there with his GPS and they can plot it out for us and they could show us whether or not 
um, this piece of wood was part of that anomaly. They've chosen not to do that as far as I can remember. Um, so without knowing exactly if it where it is in relationship with the SS Maddie Blake, I'm not sure what we can con- conclude here. But it does seem as though to me that it could be um, at sort of the southern tip of this anomaly, if not very, very close to it, okay? I suppose if you really want to look on the bright side, if you really want to um, convince yourself that perhaps there is proof of a ship in the swamp, um, then you could use this piece of wood as that, and you can tell yourself that it is close enough to this anomaly to prove the anomaly. But as mentioned, they already did... um, after doing the seismic scanning uh, on this thing that f- and found the SS Maddie Blake, the Laginas floated a barge out with a drill into the swamp at what must have been a great expense and dug some boreholes into the middle of this, and they found nothing but sand. The difference in density of the sand um, to the surrounding oil was the ex- uh, soil was the explanation for this anomaly. But remember, having said all that, Fred Nolan and the Laginas on this show Uh, On separate occasions over a course of many decades, each pulled out large planks of wood from the swamp. So there is wood in there for whatever reason, Uh, whether or not it is the anomaly found the SS Maddie Blake. We don't we we don't really know that. But um, I mean, it clearly isn't because we know what the anomaly, the point of the anomaly was. But just because the anomaly is not a ship doesn't mean that there isn't clues big pieces of wood and ship planks to be found in the swamp because clearly there are. Um, so the, despite this sort of slightly dishonest way, the narration likes to remind us of the SS Maddie Blake to sort of relate the finding of the wood and the, this anomaly in our heads, just because they're really not related doesn't mean there isn't wood in the swamp and nobody knows why there's wood in the swamp. So you see where I'm going with that? I I think we need to um, do our best as viewers to separate the two things, the anomaly and the finding of the wood from each other, because they don't seem to be related at all. But the point I'm trying to make is that just because, um, you know, we see, uh, just because we've disproven the anomaly as not being, you know, we've proven that the anomaly is not a ship doesn't mean there isn't evidence in the swamp of the ship. So we got to kind of, as viewers, separate those two uh, in our own heads for our own analysis, if that makes sense. Okay, so let's finish off now with Blake. Blake has a lot to say here. So here we go. Hey, Dave, I am new to your podcast this season, and I have found myself going all the way back to the beginning of the Curse of Oak Island to catch up on all that I've missed. First, it is truly amazing to see how much the Laginas and company have matured since the beginning of their Oak Island occupation for their search. Second, having watched all of season eight, now going back to the beginning, I've been able to really understand more about what is actually going on in combination with many online quote-unquote treasure hunters. While not having seen every episode yet, I have, the, I have seen the majority. I'm not sure if you will want to wait until the summer to discuss what is going on behind the scenes and online and not what is actually on the show. If that's the case, I'll gladly rewrite at the end of the season. Okay, let me interject here. Um, no, we don't have to wait until the off-season to discuss this kind of stuff. Uh, when we get into the summer shows, what I generally do then is, uh, rather than answer emails in every show like we're doing here, we sort of dedicate maybe a show a month to just your emails, and I'll call for them as we go on. So, um, you know, and assuming we have enough, we'll do one show for just your emails. Also, I don't really, Blake, do quote-unquote behind-the-scenes stuff, so don't depend on that for me. 
I mean, I'll speculate now and again on what might be going on, but uh, this podcast is about the Oak Island mystery, and it is not about the production of the Curse of Oak Island. It might not always sound like that's the case, but it is absolutely my goal for this show to not be about the production and the problems and the issues with the Curse of Oak Island or the personalities or anything like that. It is more about, uh, as it says at the top, the podcaster's journey to discover the truth beyond the Oak Island mystery. Anyway, Blake continues. I'd love to talk about the formulae cipher and the Roach for Call documents, especially with the presentation of new documents this week. Uh, this is from the Stevenson, uh, Mr. Stevenson, who we talked about briefly before. Now, while many people have provided their own theories about what is actually going on, there is no doubt that Zena Halpern's documents have shown something incredible but strange. Uh, and then he gives us the quote for what they read. Um, for those of you who don't remember, uh, uh, hers said, Halt, do not hold up. Dig at 40 feet with an angle 45 degrees. The shaft is 522 to the to enter the, and then we couldn't figure out what that said, uh, 1,060 or 70 feet reached chamber. Uh, then he continues. However, while the cipher is in middle French, or slang is referenced when part of the team visited France, the 90-foot stone is in English, reading 40 feet below, 2 million pounds are buried. Uh, this has been most puzzling thing for me, as we have two different languages surrounding something that is very well sought after, whatever it is Oak Island holds. I would love to hear what you think about this. I have yet to do some research of my own to determine just how old the what seems like modern English-sounding writing on the stone could be. However, it has raised some doubt to the Knights Templar theory to me, only because, from what I understand, the Knights Templar were fairly well-read, and I cannot imagine such sloppy writing. Of course, there are the possibilities that either the French that is not properly written could still be that of a quasi-illiterate individual, not of nobility, or the French that was written came from somewhere where it was spoken, but not as, a, not as prevalent, that of a second language or the son or daughter of a French immigrant who only learned to speak and not to spell. As mentioned previously, in France, when the team asked about Le Formule cipher, it was said that the writing could not be of nobility. If you have time for a second question, have you looked any uh, online theories about Nolan's Cross, Le Formule ciphers, or maps? of Captain Kids that you think are particularly fascinating. Uh, let me interrupt here and answer that part there quickly, um, and then we'll get back to the rest of your email here. To me, the most exciting work being done with regards to the Nolan Cross as now, as going on right now, is the work of uh, Chris Morford and Corian Mall, which connects these rocks, um, their angles, um, uh, to the Palace of Versailles and to the Temple Mount. That is developing work for sure. And hopefully I'm going to hear from uh, we're going to hear from those two soon. I'm going to uh, certainly try to get them on the podcast to, during the summer to talk a little bit about it. Um, you always want to for me, I always want to wait until after the show's over so that they don't have to answer with I don't know what can be revealed. Um, so that's kind of the issue you get into. Right. So we'll get to that later on. Um, I would start poking around. OK, this is where things get sketchy. Um I'll start poking, I would, if I were you, start poking around about the Le Formulae and the work of Zena Halpern. Um, look up what Scott Walter has to say about it. He is a forensic, ge forensic geologist, the former host of a show on a history channel, I believe, called America Unearth. He has a lot to say on the subject. He was involved with it. Um, so I would look into that. I, I, I'm not going to give too much of that now because I just don't want to get that distracted from it. Um, and as far as Captain Kidd goes, I have done a lot of reading about the life and times of Captain Kidd. And if you subscribe to the show and listen in the offseason, you're going to hear more on that. So um, I don't want to give away too much on that. 
I don't think there's much in Captain Kidd's life that relates to Oak Island, but it's still a fascinating life anyway. Anyway, but there is stuff that does relate, so keep listening. Blake concludes, uh, I am excited to hear what you have to say, and hopefully you do not refer me back to an old episode on your podcast. Uh, <laughs> thank you for always, I just did, thank you for always being th- uh, thorough in your responses and bringing in such diverse viewpoints for discussion. Uh, keep up the excellent work for us online, Treasure Sleuths, and I look forward to the postseason podcast this summer. All the best, Blake. Blake, um, first of all, Thank you so much for taking the time to write this. Uh, I am sorry to say I don't have much to add for you here. And let me tell you why. Uh, I've spent a lot of time with the Halpern theory over the years. And all of that, all of that this theory comes with, right? Uh, I read her book once it came out. um, And I've really poked into it and looked into it. um, And I really wanted to believe that she had uncovered something of incredible significance here. But after all that, um, at the current time, I am leaning much more towards La Formulae and these things being a fabrication of some sort. Now, I got to say this. That does not mean, please, please, it does not mean I think that Zena fabricated these or wrote these documents herself or had any knowledge of who did or why or when or anything like that. That's not what I'm saying here. Um but for a lot of reasons that I don't really want to spend a whole podcast going into, that's where I am with this. Um, and I'm going to need to be convinced otherwise before I put any more time or any more effort into this theory and how it works. As also, as longtime listeners will know, I'm not at all convinced we have any real idea of what was on the 90-foot stone or if anything like what we now think was on the 90-foot stone actually ever really existed. No one took an etching of it. No one took a copy of it. No one in later years even took a photo of it. But what they did do, I mean, I I think it existed because a lot of people have attested to it. So I think it existed. But what people did do with this stone was put it in the back of a fireplace to let it burn for decades. Um, They beat the living hell out of it at a tannery or something like that for a year, bookbindery for years. And this hardly sounds like what one would do with an artifact containing strange symbols that even if you don't think has historic significance, you think might help point you towards a treasure. And your email here, Blake, in my mind, is even more proof that this is all suspect because you're correct. There is no reason why these coded messages would be written in two different languages if they aren't even connected at all. Let me finish with this, Blake. I'm willing to be convinced, and I'd be thrilled to be proven wrong. I want nothing more than to be shown something like this and know it to be real and know it to be true. How exciting would that be for someone doing a podcast like this? Imagine I'm a person seeking the truth, reading Zena Halpern's theories for the first time, seeing these things. How disappointed I am to think that, you know, to now be convinced that I don't believe in it. Again, thank you so much. Um, If you would like to write in yourself and have a question answered here on a future podcast, just send an email to me at digginoakisland at gmail.com. Let's take a break now. And when we come back, we'll discuss this week's episode of The Curse of Oak Island. Okay, it's time now to discuss Season 8, 
episode 23 of the Curse of Oak Island called An Old Wharf's Tale. <laughs> I, I thought next week, I thought this would be the penultimate episode and that next week would be the finale. But the narrator in the previews usually says on the finale, so I'm not so sure anymore. Anyway, I'll try to figure that out for you. Over in the swamp where the episode itself actually begins, and here we see Rick Lagina. He's joining uh, Aaron Taylor and uh, digging here in the mud. Looks like a tough job, man, I got to tell you. And uh, Miriam Emerald, the other archaeologist, is over at what looks like a wash table going through some of the spoils. Um, this looks like they're way up kind of on the northeastern side of the swamp, up towards the top of the, t- the triangle of the swamp, but not all the way at the top. But and a little off, I think, a little bit, too, a little bit east. Um, Rick finds a couple of pieces of pottery, and Aaron calls them annular wear. Um, now, Aaron Taylor says something like annual, annular, <laughs> annular wear. It's tough to say. Comes in the 1750s, uh, and therefore he concludes that it's pre-searcher. Now, listen. I say this all the time, right? Aaron Taylor is the expert. I'm not. I'm a podcaster. But from what I can do, what I can find, what I can search around here is that, sure, they were making this kind of pottery before 1795, but it seems to me they were also making it after 1795. So my question, I guess, for him would would be, couldn't it also be from a searcher era or from after 1795, you know, during a time when... Uh, you know, the island was inhabited. I don't know. Just Again, I'm not the expert. Taylor also says that it appears to have been badly burned. Um, and they kind of piece them together. Kind of interesting. Anyway, the next thing we see that's re- related to the swamp, because there really isn't a lot here. We see Charles Barkhouse, uh, David Fernetti, and Dan Hensky heading up to uh, meet with Carmen Legg at his blacksmithing shop to show him this long iron bar, ring bolt type thing they found in the swamp last week. Kind of a really interesting looking piece. Um, Carmen Lake calls it an eye bolt, which he compares to a ring bolt. Now, a ring bolt is basically just a bolt with a ring at the end. This is missing the ring. He says the ring bolt would be for bigger, heavier duty things. And um, and we've discussed this a lot this year, so there's not really much reason to go over it all again. Um, And he says that uh, it is typical for something used to anchor or anchoring a ship and says it's on a ship. It doesn't appear to give much of a time frame from the blacksmithing work done. There's obviously a piece missing from it, um, but you can tell it would have been, you know, there's you don't see evidence of it breaking off along the stem either, so this must have been kind of something that was all one piece that came through uh, and then stopped, and there must have been a gap in between the stem itself and the bolt, if that makes any sense, hard to do, hard to explain this uh, <laughs> on just audio. Um, he doesn't, like I said, he doesn't give a lot of time frame to. He doesn't explain himself much, or at least we don't see him explaining himself much as to why he came to these conclusions. It's kind of a weird scene. Um, we usually get a little bit more from Carmen Leg on this stuff, but for some reason here we didn't. Um, I'm not sure what to make of it. I, I, I'm not sure what it really means. I, I haven't been able to match it up to something that would have been used on a ship. Um, so I'm a little confused by it. Um, maybe something will come along, you know, on the Internet as time goes uh, to kind of conclude over at the swamp. Um, later, we see Gary, David Fernetti coming over to this sort of northeastern side of the swamp. They're doing some metal detecting with the help of Miriam Amaralt and Aaron Taylor. And they find another of these ox shoe nails. Um, 
or at least a little piece that he says is an ox, that Gary says is an ox shoe nail. They draw some some conclusions on it, the same ones they've done for every ox shoe nail uh, or ox shoe even that they've found over this year. And I really, and I've said this before, I think when we get back to, when we look back on season eight, this will be known as the season of the ox shoe. Okay, so the only other really... The only kind of important part we need to discuss here is the Samuel Ball property. And I'm absolutely thrilled that that is the case, that we are talking a lot about the Samuel Ball property. That, uh, you know, that is a uh, historian's dream come true when it comes to this stuff. Anyway, it begins with seeing Laird Niven and Liz Michaels working, uh, still working on this site. And as I mentioned before, um, the way, what they're doing here is a government issued sort of peer-reviewed archaeological dig. It's very different than what you're seeing over in the swamp. Um, even though there's archaeologists working over there, they're not working under the same kind of constraints and under the same techniques that Laird Nevin is working with here. And it's not, the site isn't protected like this Samuel Ball site is. So um, you see it's going to take some time, probably years, <laughs> you know, um, and I, I know they're still researching things here and still looking into it. So this is an ongoing project that isn't ending at the end of this season. Alex Lagini comes by and he's helping sifting through the spoils of this site. And he finds a really cool coin shaped artifact. I mean, anytime you see something of that shape, you get excited, right? The next scene we see is Alex uh, and Laird with in the interpretive center, I think, with Rick Lagina, uh, David Frenetti, and Gary Drayton, and they're looking at this item later on under a microscope. And you could see clearly in here that there are anchors on this um, and a rope design on it. This is not a coin; it is instead a button, and it is certainly of naval origin for sure. Now, if you go to my Facebook page and the Twitter page, just go to either one of those search bar, Digging Oak Island. Um, you'll see I posted a picture, a photo of a very similar button. This button has an origin of 1807. It's found in the archives. Uh, I found it in the website for the archives of the Royal Museums in Greenwich. Um, the guys talk about it possibly being an officer's button. And this one that I found that I posted a picture of, which really does look close, uh, is indeed that. It is the uniform of a sailing master from a uniform of a sailing master, which is uh, an officer. How do I explain a sailing master? He, he's an officer on board a naval ship, and his job really is the sailing part of the mission, right? The navigation, the sailing. There's a lot of different parts of a naval uh, mission, and his the sailing master is actually sort of the guy who does the sailing. The guys then talk about this meaning Samuel Ball either owned this button himself or, more importantly, as they like to say here, a naval officer must have met with Samuel Ball in his house. I mean, I guess that's what they're saying. But the implication that Marty makes here is um, that the button was found in the house, right? Okay. So he's implying that this was actually the, the way it sounded to me is that they were implying that this button was found like in the foundation, but it was not. It's important to keep that distinction here, right? It was found just outside the foundation. It was found in the property. Uh, so I'm not sure that I'm drawing the same conclusions here, that this meant some, you know, highfalutin naval officer came and met with Samuel Ball. It just means that there was a naval person or a collector or something here. It certainly is proof of a naval presence for sure, or at least evidence of a naval presence. I shouldn't say proof. For one thing, 
Captain James Anderson lived next door. Now, he was a privateer for the British, if I'm not mistaken, and not a naval officer. But who knows? I mean, who knows where this can come from? I'm, I'm, I, it's a great little find, for sure. I love it. Anyway, let's go now to, uh, how do we describe this? Offshore of the Samuel Ball property, I guess, is the best way to do it. The team now meets with um, a gentleman named Stuart Wenzel. Uh, he is called a local treasure hunter. He's apparently a guy from right around the area who helped uh, Dan Blankenship during the 1970s. He's here to tell them about evidence of a wharf that he's found offshore from the Ball property. So now we see this is what we like to do with the editing now, right? We like to um, find an artifact and then kind of surround it with other things that sound like they're all related. So we find this little artifact of a naval button. We find a, a, a naval artifact. So now we're going to bring in some other evidence that might support the idea of naval activity. And that's obviously a wharf. <laughs> uh, and so remember before the, but it's important to keep this in mind before the causeway was built in the 1960s, everyone who actually lived on the Island would need something like a wharf or a dock or They'd be stuck on the island. I mean, I would imagine there is such evidence of similar wharfs all over Oak Island and all over the surrounding islands, even the mainland, right? So he points out two spots in the map that also seem to have sort of a, and this is not mentioned, but you can see it, right? They seem to have the, 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 the land sort of comes to a point a little bit there. It seems to make some sense just from looking at it. Um, and if you stop and look at this map, you'll notice that there's a few more such similar looking points on the map of Oak Island or on the uh, aerial shot of Oak Island all over the island, right? On other parts of the island. So we, we see t diver Tony Sampson. I love Tony Sampson. He's back and he's doing what must be a very chilly and very cold dive, to say the least. <laughs> I mean, they're in hats and gloves and heavy jackets, and he's getting in the water, for crying out loud. Um, but I'm sure he's done it many, many times before. So he goes looking for these, what are two wharfs that Mr. Wenzel claims to have seen back in the 1970s. And he, after... Swim around for a while, metal detecting while he's doing it. He comes across what he thinks are these two two wharfs that they were looking for. Um, the idea here is that one of the two is much bigger than the other, right? And this is sort of the distinction and the evidence that makes it kind of fit in with the naval idea. So the idea is that the larger one is for more than just a small boat or something to just go back and forth to the mainland, which everybody on the island would have needed before the 1960s. Um, it must have been something else, must have been something bigger. Uh, and I think Tony says that he suggests, he suggests at least that it was something of a commercial nature. That's how big he thinks it is. And, and while we're at it, you want another little narration thing that bugs the heck out of me when listening to the writing done for the narration. Um, Clotworthy calls it a potentially ancient wharf. He uses the word ancient. I might not have that quote direct, but he uses the word ancient. Someone on that writing staff, and I hope they listen, folks, you need to look up the word ancient, okay? It means something specific that I don't think you quite understand, and it drives me nuts. Anyway, it's impossible for me to say 
from looking at this, whether or not this is a war for whether or not it's really big or anything like that. The visuals just aren't there. Right. Um, and I have no reason to doubt what Tony is saying or concluding. I mean, I'm sure he's seen these. He's a diver in the area. He must have seen millions of these. Um, he seems to be pretty confident in what they're looking at. And again, it doesn't seem out of the realm of possibility for me. It certainly seems something you would expect to find. So kind of so what does it all mean? That whether this belongs to Captain Anderson or Samuel Ball, I'm not so sure that the presence of a wharf itself is at all very interesting, but the presence of a big commercial wharf, a huge wharf that is unknown to history, that's kind of the strange part, right? That's the thing you would expect there if they're really, I mean, they're talking about a wharf 100 feet long and they're in an area across from the mainland. And so when you're looking at this, it's hard to see how this would be just sort of lost to history, how this such a wharf or such commercial activity would have taken place and there would be no record of it at all. It seems very, very strange. That doesn't mean that I doubt it. It doesn't mean that I doubt its presence, but I think I'd like to see just maybe a little more evidence of this being a wharf and not just a pile of rocks, as Jock, our listener Jock likes to tell me, um, but actual evidence of a wharf and show me, plot it out for me, show me what it looks like and what it could have been used for and show me some sort of archaeological evidence that proves to me it's a wharf. Uh, and then I'll get excited about it because it is very, very interesting to think of this. It's not interesting, like I said, I'll, I'll repeat myself, it's not interesting to find evidence of a small wharf. Anybody who lived on that island before the causeway was built needs such a thing. But for something that they're saying is 100 feet long, and I think he said 16 feet wide, that's that's <laughs> that's not just for your little boat to ferry back and forth to the mainland. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of the Diggin' Oak Island podcast. Another t- shameless plug time. I produce another show called Sit Downs and Sessions. Me and my friend Chris Poe, radio host for years, we sit down over a drink or two. And we talk a lot about, over the past year, we've talked a lot about politics, but because that's what we wanted to do, was talk about pubs, pub culture, brewing, music, basically even some paranormal stuff. Basically anything you talk about at a bar, right? When two guys sit down at a bar. Uh, we're finally getting to that now. We're actually starting plans up to start recording at a few of these breweries or pubs or places that we love. Give it a listen. You can find sit-downs and sessions on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all the other usual podcasting places. If you're enjoying our show here at Digging Oak Island, uh, please do us a favor. Leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, thank you so much, everyone, for who has done that already. It, I really do appreciate it. This helps. Doing this helps to get the word out on the show. So it's great to have more listeners. Um, but again, thank you all who have done this for taking the time to do that and for the kind words. Don't forget to follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. We are at Digging Oak Island. I put some stuff up there relating to this show, so go and follow us there. Uh, and again, if you have any questions or emails, uh, comments that you want to send directly to me, the best way to do that is via email, digginoakisland at gmail.com. Just keep in mind, if you send me an email or even a direct message on social media, um, keep in mind that I might just and probably will answer it here on a future podcast. So if for some reason you don't want your message read, uh, just please make a note of that for me, and I'll do my best to answer you directly. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Digging Oak Island.